Well, welcome again to All Saints. My name is Brad Cheney. If we haven't met before, uh, if you're in town for Rasa's Bar Mitzvah, you know, a, a very special welcome to you. We're, we're delighted that you are our guest today and, uh, and do hope you feel um, warmly welcomed by us, uh, uh, by our church. As Brian had said, we're halfway through a sermon series on the life of David. I've kind of repeated myself every week prior to uh, preaching. You know, David's been on the run He's fleeing from King Saul. He's a fugitive. He had been anointed as king, but he had not yet assumed uh, the crown. Uh, but today we've hit the fast forward button in the story. We've come to Second Samuel chapter 6. And here's where we're at. Saul is dead. He, he died in battle at the hand of the Philistines. And David has at long last become the king of Israel. Uh, historians estimate that from the moment, from the initial anointing by Samuel to the, the day of his coronation, it was like 20 years, and, and 20 years of, of largely hiding and running uh, for his life. So a very a long wait that he had in front of him. And here's the first official act of his reign. He goes to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to the capital city of Jerusalem. If that sounds a little bit strange, it should. You say, well, why, why would he need to retrieve the ark? <laughs> the ark, well, where was the ark? And those who have been reading through for Samuel know that it was just a series of bizarre events where the ark ends up being located in a, a little village in Israel, um, neglected for decades. The most important, we would say the most important object in the world sits neglected for decades until finally David summons it and now he brings the ark to its proper home in the city of Jerusalem. And as we read the passage this morning, this is a strange way, of, also a strange way of thinking about it or putting it, but if, if we were to examine the passage through the lens of a drama class, the ark in this passage, um, don't think prop, think character. The ark is not a prop. It is, in fact, a character, and through this character, uh, God is going to show us what he is like in a way that nobody in the story and, in, and readers ever since um, could have ever begun to anticipate. It's a very shocking uh, story, but a story of good news. So let's read it. Second Samuel 6, beginning in verse 1. And, and for our, our Jewish friends who are here this morning, forgive my Hebrew mispronunciations, because there, there will be quite a few, most likely. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all, and he and all his men set out from uh, Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with, with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah 
because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Perez Uzzah means uh, breakout against Uzzah. And if you've been reading along, there are a number of instances throughout the story where God perezes the enemies. Like he, it says Perez, um, you know, he breaks out against the enemies. But here it is, we have Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He was afraid. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Gitom to the city of David with, with, with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a a loaf of bread, uh, a cake of dakes, and a cake of raisins. All of these would have been kind of like fine chocolates, you know, delicacies. Uh, He gave them to each person in in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned to his home... Uh, to bless his household, Michael, daughter daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. It was before the Lord I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and and I will be humiliated in even my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Our Father, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like it. It uh, It is like honey to our taste. And so we pray that in hearing it, And now having your spirit teach us, we would enjoy it. We would taste and see that it and you, the Lord, our God, are good. And we ask this through the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Common belief. God is slow to anger, patient with sinners, long-suffering, has a short fuse, you know, all of that. Uh, 
let's be honest, at first glance, it's, it's very difficult to reconcile that common notion with what we read about in this passage. Uh, do you, if this is the very first time you're hearing the story, um, it, it should sound a little offensive to you. I remember the very, when I, when I read this for the first time, uh, the, the, the immediate thought that I had was, this is not fair. Like, this is, this is not fair. I mean, all Uzzah is doing, he's trying to keep the ark from falling into the mud. I mean, it really doesn't feel as though the punishment fits the crime, does it? And then from that, all these existential questions flow. You know, like, how can I ever love a God like this? Or, or who is a God like this? Uh, if we're taking the passage seriously, surely it evokes those kinds of, of, of responses in us. Um, so where, would, uh, where I'd like to begin is by talking about the Ark of the Covenant and the holiness of God. Uh, we'll talk about um, the background of the story before uh, going any further. The Ark of the Covenant. No one has seen the Ark of the Covenant for the last 2,500 years. You know, it, it, no one except for Harrison Ford, right? <laughs> you know, it, it is, it's been lost it's been lost to the history of Israel. It's been lost to the world. We, we don't know how it was lost, but it, it doesn't exist any, any longer. It was a rectangular box about four feet long, about two feet deep, a little over two feet deep, uh, and two feet high, constructed of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. If you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, who, who of us hasn't, right? Uh, they do a fairly good job of representing the Ark in that movie. But the key, and you wouldn't know this by looking at it on the big screen, is this, the lid to the ark was a solid golden slab. And upon that lid were two golden angels, each facing one another, if you can imagine it like this, with their, their wings uh, stretched over. The, the cherubim that are facing one another on top of this pure golden slab, which was itself, do you remember the name of that golden the, the slab? It's very very unique. It's called the mercy seat. And inside the ark, there were three items. The tablets of stone that were given, uh, on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed and given to Moses. The jar of manna from the, the days of the wilderness wanderings. And then Aaron's budded staff, which was a sign and symbol of God's salvation, how he delivered the people. And then, as I said last week, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle, that, that tent of God's presence, the tabernacle, it was an architectural depiction of heaven on earth. And if you didn't know this, the, the tabernacle is where the ark was supposed to be held. So think about it. If the tabernacle is heaven on earth, then what is the ark of the covenant meant to represent? What is it? Anybody? Anybody? I'm kind of deaf up here. <laughs> it's found in verse 2. The ark was the throne of God. Like over and over again, it says in the Bible that God is enthroned between the cherubim. The ark is the throne of God on earth. It's a very deep mystery, isn't it? On the one hand, God is so great he is in everywhere, at every place, at every time. He's omnipresent because he's so much, he's larger than everything. But 
But on another hand, in a very real sense, when the presence of God came upon the tabernacle, where was God? God is right there. God is localized. And more than that, God sits enthroned in session upon the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how many people were allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant? You know, absolutely no one. Like, not even the high priest. No one, get this, no one is allowed to touch the throne of God up in heaven. Not even the angels, not the cherubim, not the seraphim, not the saints. No one touches the throne in heaven. Ergo, no one touches the throne on earth. And in fact, uh, no one was even allowed to approach the, the throne of God on earth. Uh, except for the, the, who was allowed to approach it? The high priest, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, he, would, he would come in, and the only way the priest was allowed to approach the ark was through the sprinkling of blood of the sacrifice. But even the, the high priest was never allowed to, ch- to touch the ark. And I give you all that background. You know, the very first time I read this passage, I was totally ignorant of the Old Testament. And so I, I didn't know any of that. But isn't that, all of that kind of helpful in helping us understand what may be going on here? Uh, furthermore, um, I didn't know that throughout the Torah, God gave very detailed instructions on how the ark was to be transported. No, not every Tom, Dick, and Harry <laughs> was allowed to transport the ark. Who was allowed to transport the ark? It was, the, it was a special division of the Levites who are called the Kohathites. Essentially, only the clergy were allowed to transport the ark. And basically, the sole and primary responsibility of this section of the clergy was none other than to transport the furniture of the tabernacle whenever the people moved, uh, which meant to transport safely the most important object in the, very, in the whole world. And then another factor that's very important that is, is not mentioned in the story, but it is reflected on the front of your bulletin, there were rings built into the side of the ark through which poles would be inserted. And the way the ark was carried, you would insert the poles and carry them on the shoulders of the Levites. Now, what might be the significance of that? Uh, If you know anything about the ancient world, you know that that's a very common way that you would carry royalty. Would you... Would you carry royalty on the back of a cart that is driven by an ox? No! No, but they would commonly carry royalty, you know, in elevated, in an elevated perch with poles on the shoulders of men. And then the last piece of background information. um, God said, when you transport the ark, the ark must be covered. Nobody was allowed to see the ark. No human on earth was allowed to see the ark. It was not to be seen. It was not to be touched. And of course, every one of those stipulations have been completely disregarded by the time we get to this passage. And so probably you see where I'm going with this. Um, I was a, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I was in elementary school. Um, it, those of us who were you know, 
in elementary school in the 80s, what was the most traumatic event that happened to us? It was Challenger. It was, it was you know, Space Shuttle Challenger. I mean, some of us, if you didn't know, we were sitting in a, an auditorium like this, and there was a live feed of the space shuttle as she was you know, flying up into the sky because there was an elementary school teacher, Christian McCullough, who was on that the, the, the uh, Challenger expedition. Um, and it was just earth-shattering to us. But whenever some colossal mistake like that happens, they always do, NASA always performs kind of a post-mortem. And what you find is when the space shuttle explodes in the sky, that is not a single mistake. That is not a single mistake. That is a cascade of mistakes that leads to that colossal and tragic failure. And that's exactly what we have here. Uzzah's mistake was not the mistake of a moment. It was the culmination of a long line of disregard by all the people of God. David included. David included. You see in verse 8, David's emotional response initially to this. He's angry. He's incensed. Just like we feel. Isn't that interesting? That David's emotional response to the passage is very similar to any ordinary reader's emotional response to the passage. And the only reason I can guess that that's the fact is David must have been somehow ignorant of all that the Torah had commanded, that this is what was to be done. His, his indignation, as is, I'll say this and you can think about it later, as is, is most indignation against God by human beings is the indignation of ignorance. Like, if you know more of the story, you realize you shouldn't be quite so upset. But I hope you see uh, that it's not as though God wanted to zap them and they, they die. It's not as though God is this Zeus-like figure with a, a lightning bolt in his head who's this capricious deity who just wants to kill them. I mean, the whole reason for the commandments, the commandments were there. They were meant to protect. They were meant to protect the people. Um, all right, so there's, we have the background. Let's set the scene. 30,000 Israelites are dancing around, going nuts. There are horns and cymbals and tambourines and uh, instruments here. I don't even know what they are. <laughs> um, they're, you know, they're, they're dancing. I mean, who would have guessed they're all Jewish Presbyterians? <laughs> And he reaches out because he thinks that my hand is a better option than that mud. And that's where he's so wrong. It's the assumption that probably every one of us would make that my my. The mud is dirtier than my hand. That my hand is cleaner than the mud. And that's not true. When we walked, all of us, we all walked through those doors back there into a gymnasium this morning. I suspect that few, if any of us, were asking ourselves the question, am I pure? Am I impure? Am I defiled? Am I... Like the, that whole realm of categorical thinking, of 
religious ritual cleanness and, and defilement. Like that, that is not a modern way of thinking at all. None of us are, maybe a few of us, but very few of us are operating in categories in terms of ritual cleanness. But as you, as you may know, if you're a st- student of the Bible, the Bible cares so much about that. And the symbolism of the tabernacle and the ark gives us a reason why. I mean, what could be more pure? Like, if there is a God, what could be more pure and spotless and altogether lovely than the throne of God in heaven? Nothing. Nothing at all. The operating principle of the tabernacle was simple. The holy, the pure, the undefiled can have nothing, no contact with the unholy, the impure, the the undefiled. And you know, we read the passage and we're like, Uzzah's heart was in the right place. He he had a good heart. But, But don't you see that doesn't matter. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if you are properly motivated. Not I could use this stark example, and it is a stark example. If somebody who has contracted the Ebola virus walks into the sterilized hospital room where a woman has just given birth to a a newborn baby boy, and they walk in and they see the child lying there on the scale crying, and they pick up the child in order to comfort it, does it matter that their heart was in the right place? No. No. And that is really kind of the picture of, of the tabernacle, the picture of heaven. Um, if, if I were to give you a clean a jar of water and said, here, drink it. But I, w- I w- took out a little vial and I poured in just one drop, one drop of raw sewage into this. How much of this is clean afterwards? None of it. It's defiled. It's been polluted. And so what I'm trying to say in all of this is Uzzah was not an innocent man. He was not a clean man because he did not have clean hands. He did not have the clean tongue, the clean heart of Psalm 24, which we've read already in our passage. And none of us do. All of us Um, have been polluted by our own sin. And the only way to be cleansed from that was through the shedding of blood. So here we have one of those places in the scriptures where it's a danger sign, first and foremost, that says, beware the holiness of God. You who are unholy, beware the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God is a trauma It is a trauma to those of us with unclean hands. Now, I'm very glad the story doesn't end there. Because if it did, it would be a story of of tragedy and and judgment. um, And and we'd be falsely tempted to think that that's the Bible's only message. But but it's in fact not. So those those of you who know me, well, I tell you... uh, quite frequently that my alma mater is the prestigious University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. And in the middle of the campus at U of A, there's this green, grassy, congregating area called the Mall. 
It's the central feature of the campus. The perfect place when it's springtime and 85 degrees to sit out there and, and have a lunch, talk with friends, etc., etc. Uh, the mall is where the U of A gathers. But every once in a while, someone else will come to the mall. Uh, they are the mall preachers. They are the guys who stand up in the middle of campus and yell at everyone that they, everybody's going to hell. And they pass out tracts that, that read like this. You are not ready for the judgment of God, you know, which will come swiftly upon you. You know, hell is very hot, you know, eternity is very long, you know, that type of thing. And whenever I would listen to those guys, I try to listen to them as little as possible. But if you listen to them for five minutes, you'd walk away with the impression, if there is a God, he must despise me. If there is a God, there's no way that this God would want to bless me. And if all you had was the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 6, you might reach that incorrect conclusion. Um, beware the holiness of God. Yes, we do need to beware the holiness of God. But there are two key indicators in the rest of the story that that's not the only word. And the first of one of them is found in verse 9. If you want to look there with me. We read that David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Gedim, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Gedim, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. It's, it's a little comical, probably. You know, here you have David, who's afraid of the ark, and, and he says, oh, it's too dangerous for me. Fine, let him have it. <laughs> and this man whom we know nothing about, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Obed-Gedim, um, are probably lying in their bed at night, <laughs> You know, um, trembling, wondering, did you hear anything? Did I... <laughs> Think how frightening it would be to have the ark of God come into your house after this episode. But for three months, they do nothing but experience the generous blessing of God. It is almost as if God takes the curse of sin and rolls it back. The ark is present and everything is better. Right? Like, everything is better. They're... they're their relationships are better. Their communication is better. The, what they're doing out in the fields, that goes better. Their, their flocks are better. He rolls back the curse and blesses them. Um, and what you would never hear in these, these hellfire and brimstone preachers, you would never walk away with that impression. I mean, why else would God create all of this universe and create us if not that his blessings might flow over to us. Um, and so thankfully, yes, the story doesn't end in verse 8. The key to the passage, I know I'm running a little long already, but the key to this passage is found in verses 12 through 18. I want to read that to you. Um, we read that, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has it because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken, taken only six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. And we skip to 17. 
they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Did you catch it? Something very strange is going on here. Um, David, a good young man from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the kings. Where did the, where did the priests come from? The priests were from the tribe of Levi. They were from the house of Aaron. Something very strange is going on here. Uh, what is David dressed in? This fantastic uh, painting by J- James uh, Tissot out of the Jewish Museum in New York on the front of your bulletin captures it so well. Do you notice in this how David is, is whose clothes does he look like there? The, it looks like the priest, doesn't it? So he has stripped down into the linen ephod, which was, there's some debate on this, but what I think was the customary dress of the priest. Uh, it goes six steps. It says David offered the sacrifices. It comes into a tent that David erects. And it says David offered more sacrifices and fellowship offerings. The only people that was al- people who were allowed to do that were the priests. And then at the end of it, David, you know, he's before the, the ark. He steps out in front of the people and he delivers a blessing upon the people. Who was allowed to do that? Only the priest. Only the priest on the day of Yom Kippur. What is going on? Why has God written the story this way? To answer that, I'll tell you a story and then we'll be done. Michael Ward, you probably have never heard of him before. Michael Ward is one of the foremost C.S. Lewis scholars in the world today. He's written five or so books on C.S. Lewis. Uh, He's one of those guys who could tell you, you know, what C.S. Lewis had for breakfast every day of the week, and you know all of C.S. Lewis's favorite hiking trails. You know that kind of guy. Uh, he lived in C.S. Lewis's house for a time in Oxford. He slept in C.S. Lewis's bed. You know that kind of guy. Well, he was doing his PhD. Uh, at, he did his PhD at the University of St. Andrews in um, in Scotland, and he knew he wanted to write it about Lewis, but he didn't know exactly the topic. To, I mean, there's a lot of Lewis literature out there. What did he, how, would, how would he focus this dissertation? And, you know, most people know C.S. Lewis by virtue of what? The Chronicles of Narnia, those, those seven books. Well, Lewis, most people don't know, was a medievalist. He was a professor of med- medieval and Renaissance literature, uh, he, an expert in the medieval mind. And he wrote, he himself wrote lots of different literature well, Michael Ward one day is reading a poem that C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote about the planets. And in the medieval mind, I didn't know this, but do you know how many planets there were according to the medievals? There were seven. The first two were the sun and the moon. And then we go, uh-oh, Mercury, Venus, you know, Earth, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Those are the seven. He's reading this poem on Jupiter. And he, he comes to a line in the poem that says this. Winter past and guilt forgiven. Winter past and guilt forgiven. Uh, 
that sounds a whole lot like the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Winter comes upon the land of Narnia through an evil witch. And Aslan, he, he offers himself as a sacrifice on the stone table in order to bring about the forgiveness of a traitorous main character in the story, Edmund. Winter passed and guilt forgiven. And then he thinks, well, there are six more planets. There are six more books. Um, what about the themes of Prince Caspian? What are the themes of, well, woods, war? He starts reading the poem about Mars. All of those themes are in the poem of Lewis's poem about Mars. Then he thinks about the voyage of the dawn treader. What could that be? <laughs> Sun, light, golden. All of these themes that are thrown into the voyage of the dawn treader. And he said, all of a sudden, it was like I went through a portal. A portal opened. And I realized that Lewis had based all the chronicles on the planets. And here we were, were almost a half a century later. And nobody else had pick, picked up on this. Uh, and so he ends up writing, in his words, the uh, the the funnest PhD dissertation in the, in the history of academia. Um, and that ended up getting published into a book. Um, you may know that J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were good friends. Lewis strongly encouraged Tolkien to keep writing and to eventually publish The Lord of the Rings. Anybody know how Tolkien felt about the Chronicles of Narnia? He didn't like them. He thought they were silly. He thought, he did not think they were good literature. Uh, for example, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, what is Lewis doing here? Why would you bring Father Christmas into the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe other than it's wintertime? Like, why do you introduce Santa Claus in, into this? That's just silly. It was silly to Tolkien until you realize that Father Christmas is what kind of character? He's a jovial character. What is the name of the planet Jupiter? It is Jove. And so it was that Lewis wrote every one of the stories in such a way that the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe had Jupiterness imprinted on it. And Prince Caspian had Marsness imprinted on it. And God, the great author of the Bible, wrote this story that it would have two things imprinted on it, kingness and priestness. So that we as Christians believe on the day that his son would come to the city of Jerusalem and to enter into it, there would be this echo, a collective memory in the mind of Israel. You remember David, the king of Judah, who is also, who is also a priest. And for those who had ears to hear it, to hear the echo of 2 Samuel 6. And so that is, there it is, friends. Jesus comes as the king, as the priest, and of course we say as the sacrifice. For how can anyone approach the throne of God in heaven when they are unholy other than the blood of the sacrifice? And that, you know, friends, that is the key. That really is the key. Uh, how God can be holy, holy, holy. And how God can still be uh, merciful and loving and gracious. The Bible never minimizes in one iota the holiness of God. But he purifies his people by sending 
his son as a sacrifice that all who believe in him might not perish but have blessing in his presence, everlasting life. Amen.